And as you're finding your seat, if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, where we are continuing our study together in Matthew's Gospel, the second chapter. Today, I'm going to go ahead and read the entirety of the text for us, the whole chapter, but we're only going to look at the first 12 verses. We will pick up those, that second half of it uh, next week in sort of a part two of today's message. So Matthew chapter two, beginning in verse one, will be our text that we read together. I'll read all of that chapter for us. You follow along in your copy of God's Word, where the Bible, sufficient and inerrant, says to us, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go. And search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, 
Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I wonder, if you and I were sitting over coffee this week, and we each had to answer the question, what are the top three things that tempt you or tempt me as an idol? The top three things that tempt us as an idol. I wonder, how would you answer that question? What what might fall into those categories for you. Maybe we'd need a little definition. Idolatry is not merely having some, uh, some kind of carved image in your house. Uh, it's not merely that. In fact, idolatry in the catechism that we use says idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. So what created thing or what earthly situation would make you feel? What circumstance would would call out to you in such a way that you believe if that changed, you would have hope and happiness, significance, or security? Well, maybe it's a, a certain amount of income or maybe a certain lifestyle is what you think will give you hope. Maybe it's having your children behave well or at least be seen as behaving well. That might give you security. Or or maybe you're convinced that finally getting married or finally having the kind of marriage that you wish you had would assure you of happiness. Maybe there's the temptation to think that a specific career or some kind of identity self-assigned or some kind of pleasure or some form of entertainment will supply to you hope, happiness, significance, security. I wonder if you were honest with me and I were honest with you as we sat having coffee before the Lord, what do we believe will make everything okay? I think we need to be honest with ourselves about what we truly think will give us security in this life. Where we, where we think we will find that. Better that we own up right now and be honest and hear from God's word about who we are and what we truly need. What we need most is to worship the one who created us. What we need most is to find our hope and happiness, significance and security in the one who created us for his glory. For everything else will come up short. Os Guinness once wrote that idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come from a form of overattachment to something that in itself is perfectly good. And Tim Keller said, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. I think they're both right. I think they're both correct. And unless and until we worship the one true and living God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will will trust our friends, our own self-perception, our devices. We will trust all manner of things and none of those things will satisfy our hearts 
For our hearts were not created for those things. They were created to worship God through Christ. And worship is all over our text today. In these first 12 verses, worship comes up several times. It may seem a little bit subtle to us as we look through it, but it's clearly the driving force of what God was doing in the hearts of the Magi as he drew them to see the baby Jesus. Well, we're in our third message in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm really excited about our time in this Gospel. I think we are going to learn so much about the Lord Jesus. I think we're going to see him more clearly. And as, as we worked through last week and saw the, the birth of Christ pronounced and, and, uh, and Joseph's reaction in response to that, we're still in the midst of that, that segment. This whole next chapter of chapter 2 is where we are sort of in these early beginnings of Jesus' life hearing what God did. And there's so many pictures in there that you may have seen where we where it kind of got a radar tuned out or tuned toward things like fulfillment and tuned toward things like kingdom and tuned toward things like the Christ. And we see all kinds of pictures presented to us in this section of text. And as we work our way through today's text, I want to, in these first 12 verses, work through three different stops. The first is I want to introduce all these characters. I think we will learn a lot because they're Several of them, not all of them, several of them will come back up again. We'll see them again even throughout this gospel. So we're going to take time to introduce them all and sort of work through the text by looking at who's in it. And then we're going to consider those, th those three theological themes. And then I want to take time to, to personally apply it. And I want you to do the labor there. I want you to work on what this text ought to mean to us. And we, so I'm going to ask you from the very beginning, would you join me in praying that God would use this text, that he was, would expose idols in our heart, idols in our life that have substituted for the worship of Jesus Christ. Just be praying that the Lord would do that in us this morning. As we look at this text, as we, we see the characters there, and we, we, we work our way, just let your eyes fall down those first 12 verses, you begin to see that, that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we get the place location first. So we're going we're gonna to start, it's not really a character in the story, but the location matters, it comes up as a part of prophecy, and we're reminded from the very beginning that Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem. And that, that is actually significant, and we see that even as the prophecy from Micah chapter 5 is given. So we're going to jump a little bit to the middle of the text and take that as the backdrop of what we're doing. Matthew's paraphrase here of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 really does incorporate elements from the surrounding text. It's, it's Matthew's own interpretation. It's not exactly the text as written, but it, it includes some, some different things. But let me read for you from Micah chapter 5. You may, if you have quick fingers or a digital device, flip over there. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, I'll read verses 2 through 4 for you so that you get this prophecy that we're going we're gonna to set up to help us understand the backdrop of what Herod was asking the scribes and chief priests. Micah wrote, but to you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. 
That's what Micah was talking about back in the context of Israel and the judgment that they received. He promised that there would be one who would come out of Bethlehem who would be a shepherd king. And that shepherd king would have an influence over the whole earth. That there would be a, a, a earth-wide reign that he would partake in. And so this city name that comes up here at the very beginning of our text is not coincidental. It's not just Bethlehem. It's, it's Bethlehem that God promised a chosen king would come from. And so we start with that location given to us. And now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that was the place near where Jacob buried his Rachel, where Ruth met Boaz and where King David was born and was reared. It was the city of David. Now it really as a town was not much of a town. It was, it was not kind of a, a small and nothing little place. But that is exactly where the prophet Micah said a great shepherd leader would come from. There would be one who would come from Bethlehem. And that, that city name, you may have heard this before, the, the, the name of Bethlehem is Bayat Lechem, which means the house of bread. It is as though the, the Lord, even in the naming of the city, was foretelling that there would be one who would sustain his people even more than earthly food. There would be a supply of bread from the Lord in Bethlehem. It would produce a son who would nourish and lead his people as king. So we've got this, this focus on Bethlehem right out of the gate. It's going to come back up as we get to uh, the, the promise that, that Micah gives. Uh, but then we introduce ourselves, or we are introduced to several characters. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So we get Herod mentioned to us. And you may already know that there is more than one Herod in the New Testament. This is very important for you to understand because you're going to see a Herod die and then you're going to see a Herod putting Jesus to death. And you may in your mind go, how's that work exactly if he's already dead? Well, the, the Herodian family was quite a jumbled mess. I, I, I really did entertain the notion of putting up a graphic of some sort, but the, let me just say, the branches cross in ways that make a willow tree in the wind look uh, straight, right? It, 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 is, it, is, it is not a very, uh, a very uh, kid-friendly chart, if you want. Like it, 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 This is a messed up family. They were a ruling family in Palestine. Uh, their family was in, entirely complex, uh, and it's really hard, actually, even from external sources, to, to pull them all together and figure out how this family works. We get a lot of information from the New Testament. We get a lot of information from Josephus. We get a lot of information from the early and obscure Roman historians who mention him. The one that we're dealing with in our text today is the first of them all, Herod the Great. And he had multiple wives and several sons. And there was a lot of other people inside the family who then were inside the family. Um, he, he was responsible for great political and architectural accomplishments during his reign, including the great temple whose mount is still in Jerusalem right now. So we, we have kind of uh, things that, that pass on from him that we know about, and it, he seems to have been something of a ruthless narcissist. Uh, it, it, really, it really is a, a pretty gross mess. But there are other Herods in the New Testament that are important for you to know about. There's more than one mentioned there. So the other Herods are Herod Antipas, sometimes known as Antipater. 
uh, that, which was actually Herod the Great's dad's name was Antipater. But, but this is Herod Antipas or Herod Antipater. Then Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II, and then Philip the Tetrarch, who is one of Herod the Great's sons as well. And you're going to see those people pop up in the book of Acts. You're going to see those people pop up in the Gospels multiple times. You will see the girls who are also a big pile of this mess because you get Herodias, whose skunk of a daughter Salome uh, caused the, the head of John the Baptist to be, to be taken, right? And you get Bernice and Drusilla. These were all a part of the family of the Herods. So they're, they're a big tangled up web and there's a lot of craziness going on. But one thing that you should know about the Herodian family particularly is that they were not ethnically Jewish. That may not seem like a big deal to you. It was a huge deal in Israel at the time. In fact, they were Idumean. And if you go do the etymology on what an Idumean is, that's an Edomite. That's the son of Esau, right? So this is a family descendant of Esau's family who has been installed by the Senate of Rome as the king over Israel. And you can imagine how well that goes, right? So here you've got a non-Jew, an Idumean, who is the ruler, who at one time was kind of the ruler of the area of Nazareth, and now he's become the king over all the region set in place by Rome. And he was called, at times, the king of the Jews, which to them was an insult because the guy wasn't Jewish. And so Herod the Great is this first person that we meet right here at the very beginning of our text. And we see that after Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king, that, that, that is just a loaded phrase that's really hard to, to understand without that history lesson I just did, that you see who's, who the king is. That impacts what you understand to be going on here. Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, what did they ask? Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? Well, we've got the conflict set in full place now, don't we? You see it? You see it? You've got a man who's sort of fighting for his role as ruler over this region, and he gets word from these guys who show up from somewhere else. There's another king that's been born in your land, and we'd like to meet him. Well, Herod the Great was quite a, a, uh, an evil man. He reigned from 37 until 4 BC. We're fairly, we're fairly confident that he died in 4 BC of kind of a gruesome, not murder, but gruesome, well, who knows, right? So a gruesome uh, illness is what is recorded. Um, but what that means is that he didn't die right at zero and we've got Jesus born. So all of you who are like, like the Bible students, they're like, wait, 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 because I thought BC and AD and Jesus is like the zero that splits them in half. And let me just put you at ease. That, that's a very helpful reference point. That's not necessarily given to us in the Bible in those dates, right? And so, so it, it is probably likely that Jesus was born somewhere between four and six BC during the end of the reign of Herod the Great. No problems with that at all. Um, but what, what we have here is Herod's life and death. We see from this account and from other accounts in Herod's life, he's a paranoid egomaniac. The man at one point had one of his wives and two of his sons killed because he worried they would actually try to get him off the throne. So that when we read at the end of this text that I followed all the way through that he's willing to go to great lengths of killing other people's children to make sure that there isn't some king out there. We're not actually all that shocked to read it because that is in keeping with his character. He's the kind of person who looks in control from the outside and is willing to even fake some kind of religious devotion. We see that in our text in order to keep himself at the center of his own kingdom. 
He's the kind of man who uses others. He's the kind of man who seeks to control others and who really does seek to protect himself above all else. It's the kind of man he is. But before you write off Herod and, and say, oh, what a horrible guy, and he is, we better be sure that there isn't a little bit of Herod in our own heart. We better be sure that we aren't also trying to set ourselves as the center of our own kingdom. But the second set of characters that we meet here, even in this, this, uh, this very beginning stage, are these wise men, is what the ESV says. And the wise men, the, the Greek there is magoi, uh, it's the plural of megos, and it referred to priests or experts from the area of Persia or Babylon. Uh, these were wise men, not in the terms that they were like smarter than everybody else or had more experience than everybody else, but they were sort of the sages of the day. Uh, we see the label given of Magi in Daniel chapter 1 in the Greek version, in the Septuagint. They, we see that Daniel, when he was with the wise men, when he was one of those set in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, that he also saw the wise men brought in uh, to, to there in Daniel 1 and 2. But by, by Matthew's time, this really did apply to a whole range of people whose, whose practices really revolved around things like astrology and dream interpretation, the study of sacred writings, magic, even dark magic, Zoro, Zoroastrianism kind of combined with what some would say is a, a black magic. This, this word for magi or wise men comes up again in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13, uh, where we see Elymas, the sorcerer, who was a son of the devil and an enemy of all righteousness. So we don't get a pretty picture of what magi at the time of, of the New Testament are. Magi are sort of these dark, mystical, uh, sort of diviner priests and sorcerers almost in the, in the way that they, they lived. Uh, and I, I have to wonder if, if maybe the, the, the way that we get this, I, I just, this is a completely side thought as we meet these characters and think about the magi. Where did they get the idea that there would be a king born in Bethlehem. Where, where could that have come from? And I, I do think to, to Daniel. I, I, my mind goes there. Daniel is, is dealing with, with, with writing prophecy and dealing with looking what the Lord's doing. And, and maybe, maybe even years before the Lord had begun to chart a course in his providence that these foreigners would show up uh, in this land and begin to ask. And so here they are, they show up to the authority on hand who is Herod the king. And they ask King Herod about the sign that they've been shown and they're sort of, they're, they're, they're being a humble in the way that they come to the, the reigning authority. And here they are asking, where is it this one who's been born king of the Jews? And so they show up here and then they end up at the house of Jesus. So you, you meet these characters, the, the Magi, and maybe you're familiar with, like my mom has, a manger set that has the, the magi showing up at the time of the birth. And so you've got, you know, if you've got a really nice manger set, you've got the, the three kings all dressed like kings. Uh, maybe, maybe in some card that you've gotten in the mail, you've seen they have names. There, there are sort of names attributed to, to some of these, and they've each got one gift. But you'll notice as you look at the text and are, as are kind of thinking it through, we're not told how many they are. We're not told how many gifts they brought except the types. We know there are three kinds of gifts, but we don't know how much. If it was small of one, large of another, if there were gifts even beyond that, we, we aren't sure. We are told that they come, and when they come, they don't show up to a stable or a barn, even though that's a beautiful picture. Uh, what we get here in the Bible is actually that there are, that there are these wise men 
unnumbered for us, who bring three gifts to the house where Jesus is now living. And those, those in, that information actually helps us because it seems that this, is, this has probably been a while, right? So they've been in the works, traveling from, uh, from the east and move, making their way to Bethlehem. And so it, it is very likely that Jesus is a young child at this time, maybe one or two years old. And that seems indicated by the fact that that's exactly who Herod wants to die or all the children that are in that age range. Does it strike you that when you see the Magi and are introduced to them, you realize these are typically going to be godless pagans from another land, that these are the ones who show up to worship the Savior? These are Gentiles. These are not Jews. And the Gentiles get called from another land to come in and worship the baby King Jesus. It, 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 it strikes me because it seems as though as Jesus has been born, his reign is already taking effect over the world, just like Micah promised. Just like the promise had been given that there would be a king whose reign would actually extend beyond Israel into the whole world, that all the nations would come. Here we get the Magi coming. It's as if Jesus is, as one commentator said, plundering Satan's kingdom and setting its captives free even as a baby. I wonder if, if you think about this particular set of characters in the story, if, the, if God could call the Magi from far away, who can't he call? Who would you put on the not them list? Because it seems to me from our text that the people who were, who were like at the top of the not them list are exactly who God called out of the east into worship him. Well, how did, they, how did the Lord prompt these magi on their journey? It's, the next character I've got for us to look at is, is, is coming to us in the text. He says, or, or Matthew writes for us, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And the star is the next character I want to introduce you to because this gets spoken about a lot. There's a lot of, of guesses and, and maybe considerations or, or ideas about what this may be. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that we might be curious about when we come to the star. I've seen documentaries that are incredibly encouraging and helpful. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us all that. Was this something natural like a, a comet or a planetary conjunction or some kind of supernova? Or was this something that was entirely and completely supernatural, a unique event that God was doing? Well, I, I wonder about that. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think the text actually supplies for us. What that is, it does seem consistent to me that the star coming to rest over the place where Jesus was and indicating to them that that seems like something God uniquely was doing. But I don't think it actually, you have to die on one of those hills. I think Matthew's actual point is not astronomical here. It is actually theological here. That God was showing and leading people in a sovereign way, was drawing in the nations to worship the king. The pagans were being brought in by the means God directed for them to come. And that king that was born was going to rescue God's people. And that's exactly what was prophesied by another Gentile. Maybe you've worked your way through Numbers recently and you remember Balaam in Numbers chapter 24 saying, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see, but not now. I behold, but not near 
A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city. Here's Matthew, I believe, pounding the beat of fulfillment and of kingdom and of Christ, pointing us to the reality that what God promised, God did. So the star is how the Lord drew these magi to King Jesus. And it just reminds me, if, if, if God can use a star to draw a bunch of messed up pagan mystics, maybe he can use us as well. Maybe he can use me. Maybe I don't have to say it just exactly right for the Lord to do his work. And maybe you don't either. Maybe the Lord can do his work as you faithfully follow his lead, as you faithfully communicate to the best of your ability. I just worry that sometimes you and I are tempted to not even speak the name of Jesus because we're worried I'll mess it up. I, I don't know the routine. I, I didn't go to seminary, so I don't know how to tell somebody about Jesus. But friend, you do. You know what he did for you. You know that he rescued you from your sins. You can be like the blind man who was healed that says, all I know is I was blind and now I see. That's what I know. I know he rescued me. And you can trust that God uses what he intends. If he can use a star to lead pagans, I am confident he can use you. Well, the next character that we see in our passage, in this narrative, are the chief priests and scribes. So we, we read, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, we've met them. Behold, wise men, we've met them, came from the east, uh, uh, from the east, came from, to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And listen, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, first, just pause. Who, who, who was troubled with Herod? Like, who, who was that? Well, I, I think anybody who knew that Herod just found out. I think anybody who, who had a, a, any kind of knowledge of what kind of man Herod was, that he would stop at nothing to destroy uh, uh, a, an infant king, that he really couldn't uh, stand the idea of being replaced as king, that anyone who heard that would be struck with fear over that and be troubled because we've got an unpredictable, psychopathic ruler on the throne. So all of Jerusalem with him is troubled. So what does Herod do? He assembles, the text says, all the chief priests and scribes of the people. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they, they told him. And then we get the quote from Micah chapter 5. So these, these chief priests and scribes, the chief priests included the current high priests along with all the surviving predecessors and members of the Sanhedrin who belonged to the highest ranking priestly family. So they are the, the chief priests. And the scribes were the experts in the matters related to the study of the Hebrew scriptures. So you've got these two groups and Herod recognized that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible said there was a king coming. And so he went to the experts and drew them together and said, you need to tell me what this prophecy is about and where is, where is this king going to be born? It's interesting to me that these are actually religious groups that hate each other. It, 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 it is, it, the, the chief priests uh, the, the, the vast majority of the chief priests were who you know as the Sadducees. And the vast majority of the scribes were the Pharisees. And so the scribes and the chief priests were actually political enemies. 
So when Herod goes to them and, and, and he, wants, he wants them to, to kind of lead him along, they are, they are caught in an interesting spot because they don't really like each other. I think it's also interesting that these are men who know what God has said in the Bible. They just don't want to apply it to their own lives. It's interesting to me. So he goes to them to, to get this quote. They know the quote, but they, they, they clearly can't see the significance and as the, the chief priests and scribes, they confirm what Micah said about Bethlehem, Herod starts to put his scheme into effect. In verse 7, Herod calls the Magi back and gets information about when they first started seeing that star. And then he, he sends them out like GPS trackers to go find this infant king. And he says to them, hey, when you find him, you come back and tell me and I'll, I'll come worship him. But no one who knows Herod's history is confused that he's going to actually do that. In fact, we all know he's got a plan. And it starts with finding this little king. So after their visit with Herod, they go back out. We have the wise men going back out, the magi stepping back out. And then God's sign of a star returns and we see the magi rejoice with great joy. Do you see that? And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when they found him, or when you have found him, bring me word for I too, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where, Jesus, where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy exceedingly with great joy is just the most dramatic way of saying they were overjoyed. It was overflowing from them. When they saw the star, when, when, when the sign returned and they were gonna be able to find the, the newborn king, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so this, this infant king, Jesus, is the final character that we wanna meet in this first 12 verses. They're, they're thrilled about the, the star and they've come to the house, not the, not the manger, but the house where Jesus is there and Mary with him. And what happens when they get there and going, verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And what did they do? They fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, when we come to the word worship here, this is the third time you've seen it in this text. You may not have noticed it at first. They've come to worship him. Uh, Herod wants to know where he is so he can go worship him. And now they find him and they worship him. So it really does feel like this whole text is leading this theme of worship all the way through. But when, when the Magi come to him, they don't just worship him as like, oh, now we found the king. Hey, political props, high, high five. Uh, we'll just kind of leave our gifts here at the door. Good to see you moving on. They fall on their knees and worship him. It's intensified when we get that. In fact, in just a, a few chapters, Satan uses this same kind of language in Matthew chapter four to call for Jesus to bow down and worship him. And Jesus replies that only God is worthy of that kind of worship. The combination of, of verbs here seems to indicate this was worship in the, the highest sense. Jesus is the object of worship. He is the, the person that is being worshiped. And throughout Matthew's gospel, that is true. So that we see the disciples' worship of Jesus as a part of the climax of the book. When we come to the end, worship is the theme again. 
both at the beginning and the end of his life. So the Magi who've traveled hundreds of miles, miles and miles, they fall to their knees and worship and they, they, they give Jesus gifts and the language here that they open their gifts. It's like they're in, they're in boxes or crates or something. It makes the gifts seem substantial and the gifts are frankincense and, and gold and, and myrrh. And it's been pointed out that, that maybe the gold represents royalty and, and maybe the frankincense is, is, is something that is uh, about his divinity and maybe the myrrh foretells his sacrificial death. And Matthew doesn't give us those details here, though those things make sense to me but that's not something Matthew mentions he just mentions that these are gifts and they are expensive it's very clear that these wise men these magi have given costly gifts in fact they model what Jesus is going to say disciples in his kingdom are supposed to look like that they do that King Jesus is later going to warn in chapter 6 don't make earthly treasures where your heart settles and here we've got the wise men giving away earthly treasures to the king He's, Jesus is going to call disciples to put the, the kingdom first and its righteousness and all these other things are going to be added unto you. Material things aren't something we should be worried about. And here we see these magi giving their material things away as an act of worship to the infant Messiah. And then at the very end of our section today, we see the Lord through an angel is going to frustrate Herod's plans. He's going to use the Magi. Herod wanted to, to, to spy out Jesus, uh, but they're going to go home a different way. They did not return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. So we've introduced some characters, right? So part one, we're just going to introduce and meet people. Herod, the Magi, the star, the chief priests and scribes, and Jesus. And we've seen a lot already, but friends, have you been hearing those fulfillment those, those themes of kingdom, the, the, the idea of what Christ is doing even in here? Does this passage have the theological theme of fulfillment in it? How about Genesis 1 or Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3? The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, listen, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the Abrahamic covenant, there's a promise that all the families of the earth, even the Magi, are gonna be blessed. Psalm chapter two, verse eight says, ask of me to the royal son and I will make the nations, the nations, your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. Isaiah chapter 66 prophesied, I, I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish and Pul and Lud, who draw the bow and Tubal and Javan to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory and they shall declare my glory among the nations. In Micah chapter four, we're told that many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And all that has come together in Christ. Acts chapter 15, Peter made it really plain at that, the, the inter-church discussion of what we were requiring of the Gentiles. Peter stands up and says, brothers, you know, that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Right here in Matthew chapter 2, at the very beginning, we are seeing the nations come to Jesus. So that every one of the the short list of promises I just read you are being filled up. They started way back in Genesis, worked their way all the way through the Old Testament that God is redeeming people from every tribe and every tongue. It's not just for Israel, it's for all the Gentiles. Why is that good news? Because most of you and I are Gentiles. If you're sitting in here today and you're not ethnically Jewish, all those funny names are about you. The gospel found you. And so that is, that is delightful news. That is worship-inspiring news. That the nations would be drawn to Jesus. That you and I would be brought in. That the promises that God made at the beginning would be fulfilled in this infant king. In baby Jesus. That he would be establishing what comes next. His kingdom. He's setting up a whole new kingdom. And we see that here. You see that in the the newborn king that the Magi proclaim and the, the political king of Israel that Herod represents. But you see that God is building a new kingdom. This is not like the old kingdoms. We see it in the submission of the Magi. We see it in, in the hatred of the worldly authorities. God is building a kingdom. And in his kingdom, in this kingdom, rebel hearts from all over the world are one and they will come and bend the knee joyfully to the King Jesus. Even as a baby, King Jesus commands worship. We see him as the Christ all through this as well. All those those promises, the Magi's question, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? It reflects an awareness from from God's kindness to them before, that they understood that there was a promised Messiah. It says that they believed that the long-awaited Messiah had come. The one that Micah promised as a shepherd king, there in the quote in our text, who would guard his people and bring in the nations. He was Messiah. He was Christ. And we see the sad blindness of the chief priests and scribes who should have been looking for the Christ and who instead wanted to maintain their own kingdom. So we see fulfillment and we see kingdom and we, we see Christ. Well, Matt, that's interesting. You just gave us a really neat uh, introduction to this text. We learned a lot about the characters. We, we see kind of all the theological themes running through, but what do I do with this? Where, where, where does this impact you and me? Well, I think the driving point of this text is worship. I think we see it from the beginning to the end. I think the Gentiles being brought in to worship God is the theme of this text. There may be other applications you can make, but I believe that the central one is that we are to worship. And so I wanna take just three things that I notice from the way that the Magi function in this text and apply them to you and to me as we think through how we can live out truth that we see here. Notice first that Jesus is worthy of great lengths. And I'm not just talking about miles, though that is the obvious thing here, right? So they, they travel likely over 800 miles to find this, this baby Jesus back in a day when they didn't get in their, their uh, car and drive, but instead had to travel in an entourage of kinds. There's no air flight or anything like that. So they have traveled on a very lengthy journey and they obviously think that the extraordinary effort that they were putting forth was worth it for this newborn king. And I wonder in our lives, just practically speaking, taking kind of off of that, lifting forward and thinking, I wonder what lengths would you go to to follow Jesus? 
I mean, are you willing to even step out of your comfort zone? Are, are, we, are we willing to overcome obstacles, to persevere in our faith, even when it seems like this is a long road and I am very tired? I am worn out, God. I am so worn out. We sang it, come to Jesus and rest in him. Lord, I am so worn out. This journey feels so long. What do I do? How do I keep going? How is it that, that, that I keep on pressing, Lord? It just, it feels like it, this, this is too long. It's too hard. The call of the disciple is to say that Jesus is worth however long the journey is. Jesus is worth it. There are times when it seems like you're not gonna make it, but remember that Jesus is worth the pursuit. The, the Magi's journey reminds me, weary one, you be reminded with me. Don't give up on Jesus. He has not given up on us. He is worthy of great lengths, but not only great lengths, I see great treasures mentioned here. The, the, the Magi bring their best. They, they, they bring their best and they lay it down before Jesus. They give it away. And I, I want to challenge you, friends of Basswood Church, to consider what you're bringing to Jesus. To just consider, are you bringing all of you to the Lord and saying, God, I'm, I'm yours. I am a blank check. You can have all of my life. If I've got a talent, it's yours. If I've got a resource, it's yours. If I've got a skill, it's yours. If I have hands that can do something, they're yours. If I've got a mind that is trained in a specific way, it's yours. If I've got relationships with people, they're yours. Everything about me, I'm laying it down at your feet. Did you remember we sang it today. We, we sang the, that last, uh, let me find it, the, the last verse of When I Survey, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If I've been loved like this, you get it all. My life, a blank check, Lord. Where do you want to write it? I'm not mine, I'm yours. Young adults, as you are thinking through your future work, as you are thinking through relationships, you, you would be wise to say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm, spend me wherever you want. What if it's somewhere nobody else notices? Lord, spend me wherever you want. What if it's doing work that is dirty work that nobody else wants to, Lord, spend me wherever you want. You are worth every treasure. Anything I have, all that I have, I'm yours. That's what I see the Magi doing in their worship of Jesus. It's not just coming to church on Sunday and declaring. It's saying, my life belongs to you, Lord, the whole of it. So everything I've got is yours. Now, can you, sitting where you are right now, think of any area where you're not saying that? And if so, friend, come to Jesus and rest in him. Turn again to him and say, Lord, Lord, I've been holding on to this, but it's yours. Consider it all and lay it before Jesus. But also see that these magi showed us that Jesus is not only worthy of great, great uh, lengths, he's worthy of great um, treasures, he's also worthy of great worship. The magi came and set their whole hearts down before him. They fell on their faces, got on their knees, and they worship him for who he is. Now you just think about the consequence of that. Friends, this is before he died on the cross. Jesus is infinitely worthy of worship for who he is, not just what he does. 
It's not merely that he rescued us. He is worthy of worship for who he is. Jesus is worthy of your worship, irrespective of the circumstances of your life. Whether your life is going great or whether it's really, really hard changes nothing about the worthiness of Jesus. Worship him. He's worthy of it from us all. At this point in the story, Jesus hasn't died as a substitute for sinners. He will. He will die for all those who would turn to him. But in human history, this is the part of the story of his infancy. He's a baby and he is worthy of worship, even here. And then what you consider what he has done and it just adds to that, right? You think not only is he worthy quite apart from what he's done for me, but what has he done On my behalf, he went to the cross as a substitute. I had the sin. He took the punishment. He gave me forgiveness and freedom. He gave me hope for an eternity. He did that for me. So for we who have eyes to see, who God has been gracious to, who we see this Jesus for who he is as as second person of the Trinity, as part of the creator God, he is worthy of my worship, but he is also the redeemer God who has recreated us. Oh friends, our lives ought to be his. We ought to worship. It ought to be that we, we seek every way we can to declare that Jesus is worthy of worship. There's been a song playing at our house for several weeks now. Uh, there's there's a, a, a kid's album. It's, it's kind of a, a, a very thinly disguised not kid's album because it's very pertinent to us. There's a song uh, in, it, in it that says, Awesome is the Lord Most High, ruler over earth and sky. Sing a song as loud as he is worthy. <laughs> it reminds me of, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Like, oh God, could I sing a song with the loudness that you're worthy of? Let let me just sing like you're worthy. And friends, let me just invite you to live your life in such a way that he's worthy of for who he is and for what he's done. We think of the Christmas songs, oh come, let us adore him for he alone is worthy, Christ the Lord. So as we think about worship and we see it all over this text, I wonder who will you worship? The Lord Jesus or your own idols? I think we all need to answer that question. Will we, will we be content to try to grope around our lives, grasping at people and at things and at circumstances, hoping that they're gonna deliver to us what only Jesus can provide? Or will we worship the one who is worthy of our whole lives? My plea to you is, oh come, let us adore him. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your son Jesus, of who he is and of what he has done. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to live lives of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.